Sorry. I just... No, don't apologize. I just always am loud. We are here. Uh, this is the Video Game Hour. Video Game Hour. Uh, I'm Tavi. I'm Yusuf. And who do we have here? <laughs> we are uh, welcoming a very special guest, Michelle Earnhardt. Uh, and Michelle, you are a writer who is most prominently written for Kill Screen, uh, Bullet Points, and Paste. Um, and uh, to our listeners, you guys can find her on Twitter at uh, Shell Earnhardt. That's Michelle without the M-I. Shell Earnhardt. Yeah, correct. Hi. Um, I'm Michelle. Uh, it's pronounced Earhart. My bad. My bad. I'll, uh, I'll let you off Earhart. the hook right now. I swear to God, I've been to so many restaurants where they make the same mistakes. So. I'm so sorry. No, it's okay. Uh, strong women of, of air and space, you know? <laughs> yeah, Earhart. There you go. Good there we um, go. Hopefully mnemonic. I won't disappear in the middle. No, please don't. Yeah. <laughs> well, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself as well? My introduction is just a tiny introduction just a slice yeah so i am michelle Earhart. i um got my start in writing prominently doing non-game stuff actually i did a lot of uh coverage of like lgbt issues for like out in the advocate but uh when i moved to uh getting an internship at kill screen i started writing pretty prominently about games and since then i've uh written for like paste the atlantic um uh, what is it? Bullet points. Uh, I'm going to be writing for a couple of other places soon-ish. Uh, I like to think I know a good deal about games without being too arrogant about it. So, <laughs> um, yeah, uh, Breath of the Wild is one of the games that I've like really dug into recently, and I'm happy to be here to talk about it. Yeah, we're really excited to have you as well. I think Breath of the Wild's been, I mean, a game that I've personally been anticipating for so long. I've been like a lifelong Zelda fan. Um, and of course, as like a both a Wii U and a Switch owner, it's like the only game that I guess really matters on the Switch catalog <laughs> right now. Um, but you also played it on the. Wii I U, did right? play it on the Wii U. The thing is, like when they announced the Switch, I actually went in and put a pre-order because I knew they were going to run out. Uh, I was just like, I'm going to put in a pre-order now, so that when the Switch comes, I can just get my Switch. But then when I looked at like the launch uh lineup coming up and like the games to come out for the next year it's like you know what i can wait for a price drop i feel like that's probably the more it's not what i want to do but that's the more responsible thing to do i just play zelda on my wii u that i already have that so is I, very mature of such a wise move yeah i canceled my pre-order so i do not have a switch and i played on the wii u but it's pretty much the same version except oh, yeah. you guys took our map functionality away from us <laughs> yeah. that's true yeah if it's the spoils of the new hardware we have yeah. destroyed the original intention which would have had the awesome <laughs> world map map to the uh the wii u it's kind of funny controller. though um the all, I've been looking up the speed runs of the game, and everyone does it on the Wii U because really? of the amiibo support. Oh, because wow. you can basically call down a horse, and so they use the horse to kind of get. Can you across. not do amiibos on the Switch yet? No, yeah, you can. You absolutely can. Yeah. Oh, buddy, I'm using my amiibo almost every day. Oh, really? Yeah, once a day work? you can do it. Yeah, it works. You have to hover oh, on never the mind that. right. The right yeah. joystick is also an NFC reader. It's really, yeah, it's like an interesting That's thing. Weird. I haven't gotten any of the cool <laughs> stuff for my amiibo because oh, really? I have the. My now my second favorite Zelda game um, was Wind Waker, uh, so I got the little like Toon Link um, from Wind Waker, I guess from Smash Brothers. But it's like my favorite was my favorite Zelda game until Breath of the Wild came out. Um, but yeah, it like drops like a whole bunch of fish from the sky and mm-hmm. a chest, <laughs> uh, and yeah. the chest should contain eventually like a Toon Link outfit, but I haven't rolled it yet. So oh, it's a random really chance. Yeah. I like that you can get like the past Link outfits that way. Yeah. There is a traditional Link outfit to unlock in Breath of the Wild. Oh yeah, I heard about this. That I'm slowly working towards because I don't have Amiibo and I want it, but it 
it takes a lot of dedication and you're going to beat the game before you get it. So. Oh, okay. Well, we have conditions for that one. Um, basically, oh, I don't want to spoil it for oh, the okay, listeners, okay, yeah, but... Um, oh, no, we're spoiler. I we're can't. spoiler. Okay. Oh, yeah. We should yeah. just put it out there one more time just in case you have been listening to previous episodes or if you haven't. We spoil the shit out of everything. We've completed the game. We're going to talk about everything. That's cool. Because yeah. that's generally how I like to roll anyway. Yeah, so totally. um, the yeah. conditions for getting that outfit are to get all 120 shrines. Oh, so I'm close. Yeah. I'm actually close. Oh, wow. Really? Yeah, how I'm, many do you have? I've got like 107. Yeah, that's more than me. I'm like at 95. Oh, you guys are roughly in parity. Yeah, I think I'm 93. I'm slowly yeah. working towards it. Like if I have an extra half hour in the morning, just like I'm going to go shrine hunting. Trying not yeah. to use guides as much as I can. It takes longer and longer, though, to find the shrine. It certainly yeah. does. And like, I think the ones that I have left are some of the more puzzly ones, the ones that actually have like the lore or yeah. whatever behind Those them. Those are probably like, my favorites. Yeah, they are my favorites. The like, ones I, that are a bit more involved. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's interesting because like, as I... Um, what is it? I've already like exhausted my shrine quests, uh, which were like my only leads for shrines. Mm. I do ah. think it's interesting that like you can get leads by talking to people and they give you actual directions and riddles instead of like waypoints to follow yeah and you have to like they move the puzzles out of the dungeons and into just like the world designs a little bit which is really neat totally i think maybe before we even start talking about like thematics and like the sort of deeper end of like what the game means to us or what it reminds us of i think there's these really interesting things um that we were chatting about slightly before we started recording where you know, we were talking about puzzle games versus adventure games or like what our expectations were of the series. And just as you so rightly said, I think there were elements of the puzzle uh, dungeons that are bleeding out into the world and maybe elements of the adventure world that are bleeding into the puzzle or dungeon-y areas. Mm-hmm. What do you guys think? Is this, I mean, is this a puzzle game? Is this an adventure game? Is it both? Like, what do we got? Well, I think that we were talking about how Zelda's always kind of breached that barrier, like had it kind of like... Fuzzed, fuzzed it up a bit. There's yeah. always been a bit of both. Like, especially in the dungeons where, like, you're kind of, like, solving puzzles to solve the dungeon. Like, that's the biggest challenge, not usually the boss. The boss Certainly. is very straightforward, yeah. as it is in this game. Um, <laughs> More on that. Okay. Yeah. yeah. But, yeah, I mean, I, I was, I just wanted to bring up the puzzles that I like the best, which are the overworld puzzles. Like, mm. um, like one of my most memorable ones was, like, that lightning uh, zone where you, that, where you kind of have to go into the rain cloud <coughs> And um, kind of drop a bunch of balls into holes while you're constantly getting attacked by lightning. Yeah, totally. Like, and like normally in the game when there's a lightning storm, you can just like uh, take off your gear. And this one zone, lightning will hit you no matter what you're wearing. So uh, it was really fun to try and figure out like all the ways to not have that happen because mm-hmm. that was just like the game wasn't really. It doesn't hint. It doesn't tell you what to do. Like you have to just figure that out yourself and like hide under a tall tree that yeah. works but then the tree will get like struck down by lightning and like or you can uh, you know have a metal weapon and use that as like a lightning rod yeah. and then throw, totally. throw that away from you like totally oh my god I didn't even think yeah, that. yeah. it's actually yeah. one of my favorite things I to didn't do even think to... of like using a metal to like lure them exactly it's like the opposite of what you want to yeah. have yeah. but then it's like oh actually you can just like lure the lightning one of my like, favorite yeah. things to do sorry just, no, I don't no, want to do like a diversion in the middle of please please no but what I really love is like when the um I forget what they're called. Oh god, I feel sorry. Yiga, Yiga. Oh yeah, the, the, the Naruto like, guy. Anti, when, yeah, the yeah. anti Shika. What I really like is like when the Yiga Blade Masters warp in to fight you yes. in the middle of a lightning storm, and then suddenly they whip out their blades and they get struck Holy by lightning. Fuck. And like, shouldn't have been wearing metal. <laughs> Haven't you been playing this game? <laughs> like, oh, I learned that in the first hour. I know. Yeah. yeah right. Exactly. Who are these yeah. idiots? That's, no. that's actually really funny. And I tend to use. 
like especially when I expanded my inventory a little bit more um, with all the Korok seeds, mm-hmm. I'd find these um, kind of mid to late game long throw weapons, like weapons mm-hmm. that have yeah. like the ability to be tossed further. Yeah. And I'd get like some that are just like the rusty broadsword or whatever, and I'm like, why am I even gonna like six damage, whatever. I'm mm-hmm. only on these twenty seven damage weapons. But I realized if I'm in a lightning storm, mm. I'll wait because there's that countdown as yeah. you like get more and more conductive or conducive to lightning and you're like about to get hit. And if you get the timing down right, you actually just wait and wind up and then <laughs> chuck the lightning rod mm-hmm. into a group of enemies and fry them all. And that's such a yeah. great like wacky D&D solution yeah, that totally. wouldn't work in like a more like traditionally scripted game where it's like you need the blue key to get through the blue door yeah. even though you're like well, I have a shotgun and just blow down the door. <laughs> that's there is no it's like door. this game is one of those games where you think like this should logically work. This would work in real life but it won't work in the video game and then you try it in the video game and it works in the video game. I think that was one of the yeah. most impressive things in the early game for me. Because, I don't you know, suggest you take out metal in real life. <laughs> yeah, the total the viewer discretion or listener discretion. <laughs> Sorry, don't mean to interrupt oh, no, no, you it's for fine. my bad joke. No, totally fine. Um, I think it's interesting because like in the early early to mid early to mid game, let's say when we were still discovering all the various systems that the game is made out of, you know, we've uh, we like the general mass market gamer have become so used to almost the limitations of open world games more than the freedoms that they give you. And I really felt in Breath of the Wild this incredible sense of liberation where I was like, yeah, like, and I know this is like the simplest thing that you've seen in every trailer, but like, chop down a tree turns into a log, roll the log towards the water, now you've got a raft. The mm-hmm. log floats, I jump on log, float down the river, free ride. <laughs> mm-hmm. Now this sounds incredibly... Uh, non-adventurous, you know, especially in the context of saving a kingdom from, like, Calamity Ganon, but I was just, it it was almost a, it was just a revelatory moment for me, because I find that it really makes my post-game experiences a lot more fun, because now I feel free to just, like, experiment, and these systems all interact with each other so wonderfully. Um, I think right before we started recording, we were starting to talk about the Octo Balloon, Mm -hmm. which I think is, like, one of your favorite items. The Octo Balloon is probably my favorite item like non-main well there aren't really main items I'm just getting more on that later (laughs) but the Octo Balloon is probably my favorite item in this game because it's just like a normal droppable item like in World it is the equivalent to like a World of Warcraft the boar dropped a pelt but like in World of Warcraft all you do with that pelt is you either take it in for a quest or like you take it in you craft slightly better armor for it. You put on the armor. You're just doing the same stuff, but at a higher number. Yeah. So, like, you haven't really gotten better at the game. You just, like, put more time into it. But, like, the Octo Balloon, what it does is, like, because this game's best thing is, like, interacting, like, with the world in these weird ways, like we were talking about with the lightning. Yeah. Um, like, what the Octo Balloon does is just a normal, droppable... And it doesn't break the game, but it opens up, like, a new way for you to interact with the world. It's just, like, a fun novelty. And I'm totally down for that being, like, how we approach loot more than, like, numbers-based stuff. Like, it doesn't have to, like, not each loot needs to be, like, oh, right, I, like, got the (laughs) space jump in Metroid, and now I'm OP and can go everywhere. But, like, the Octoballoon gets, like, a tiny sliver of that feeling into just, like, the normal farming uh, yeah. relationship you tend to have with enemies that I love having that more commonly, and I think that's a more, like, that's a reason for me to want to go out and, like, fight these monsters more 
than just like, oh, I got an Optorock gut. This is gross, and I don't <laughs> want to carry it, but it's useful for my numbers. You know? Yeah, exactly. I'll get I, rupees out of it, or I'll get like some vital trade out of it. No, it's like a fun thing to It's strap. just like a small touch. It's like a... It's it's such a great way of almost transferring that feeling of like opening a chest in Zelda, but just to like normal loot. And yeah. it's something I'd like to see like more games like take on is like having their loot change, like allow their player to do something that they wouldn't have done before. And it it can just be like a fun novelty. But I think that's like so much more of a feeling of like it, it raises the player's skill ceiling to use like a gamer term in a way yep. and it allows them to like get better at the game through actually doing something concrete instead of just like putting in more of a time investment and it's, it's just cool. like the most distilled version of that I could find in, the, in this game and that's mm. why I love it so yeah. much it's it actually nice. reminds me of uh, Minecraft a little bit because we were talking about Minecraft earlier mm -hmm. just like you were playing on the Switch mm -hmm. and I wonder if like it feels like influential like in terms of like approach to games I feel like a lot of games haven't adopted where the whole like doing something cool that you can share with people yes and like that's such a big thing with Zelda too like at least using Twitter like people like go up on Twitter and show something crazy they did like I deflected the blast from a guardian or like I um threw a, a one of the chickens what are the chickens called? oh the cuckoos oh, yeah. at the um at one of the uh, goblins. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. And cause them and to attack. It, and, like, it's great. All the chickens attack it. Just like these really interesting moments that like are built out of the game systems, and then they're just really fun to share. Yeah. Did you see that video of um, of Nick Robinson from Polygon, and he was in the uh, electricity dungeon, and he yes, had to get so. he had to move electricity from one switch across the room to another switch, and there's like an official solution built into the dungeon, but instead what he did is he took all of his metal items and he lined them up oh, wow. in a row from like the electricity producing switch oh, to the electricity God. retreating switch and they followed the circuit and complete and like electrified the switch he was supposed to electrify and then he was able to like go back go through the door without actually solving that the puzzle it's fucking awesome i yeah. think that that That's in a good. way and especially when talking about like unpacking the octo rock or octo balloon or whatever um, I think it's really interesting to think about such a refined game system that has enough space and enough flexibility to deal with toys. Like, the Octorock Balloon yeah. is a toy within a game environment. And that's incredible to me because, yes, we could use it for fun, we can use it for innovation, to try like some wackadoodle stuff that we'll share on Twitter... We can, we can use it to, like, make the critical path a little bit easier, but it's just there, and it like, has an identity, you know? In, in most, like, ways of playing with the game, it's, like, the Octo Balloon is just, like, a fun novelty, but yeah. there are ways to use it to, like, totally break the game totally. that people will... Uh, it, you know, if you put if you put it there, people will come, exactly. and, like, I, to use a cliche. Yeah, totally. But, um, like, most people probably won't do much with it, but you can totally, like, you can take a raft... You can attach octo balloons to it, and they'll like pop. But then you use stasis, and you put other octo balloons on it while the raft is there, and mm. it'll keep flying up to like the top of the world. <laughs> and then you just like jump off with your paraglider, and you go straight to Hyrule Castle that way. That's amazing. Um, That's yeah. crazy. Or you can like t take a bomb, attach an octo balloon to it. The octo balloon lifts up the bomb, and then you use a Korok leaf to push the bomb, and suddenly you've made like a rocket launcher. Oh, no, that's amazing! Yeah. Oh man, that's I gotta so go back good. and play. That's I crazy. know. Every time you like see something new like that, you just want to try it yourself because mm -hmm. it's like that kind of 
it is like that that joy as a, you forget as an adult, but like you have as a kid, where yeah. like somebody shows you like oh cool way to use this toy that you never thought you can you know do before. Fidget spinner. Even, even, <laughs> oh god. Oh god! I know we're all grimacing. Even stasis, which is yeah, like a main power so for crazy. the game, like it the runes are like the closest thing to a traditional Zelda inventory, yeah, and that's totally. like one of the ways. But like stasis. And all of the rooms, but I think especially stasis, is so applicable to so many situations where, as opposed to, like, um, you know, you get the ball and chain in Twilight Princess, and it's really cool looking, and it's it's fun to use, but it doesn't have many applications outside of specifically breaking the yeah. ice blocks in the ice temple. Um, not to say I didn't use it, because if I get a ball and chain, I'm going to use You're gonna it. You're going to use ball and chain. Even if it's not the most effective way. Um, I have, like... I have a I have special feelings towards Twilight Princess. I know it's not everyone's favorite. I but good it was, I never completed it, but I really should. Yeah, I think it has the best dungeons in the series. Sweet. But we're getting off track. No, it's cool. But like, me, meanwhile, Stasis, uh, you're super breaking the game if you do this, which I'm not judging. I do it anyway. But like Stasis, you can use it on so many enemies just to like make combat easier. You can use it to like a Hinoxes will like their eyes are your weak point, yeah. and they'll cover their eyes after a little bit. So you can use Stasis. To stop them before they cover their eyes nice. and then hit them in it, or mm-hmm. like um, you can use stasis to like move to something a lot of early speedrunners have done is to like use uh, they'll find a rock uh, that's like half way across the map from the Temple of Time, which is where they need to be, and they'll use stasis on it and then they'll hit it with a hammer a bunch. And it'll just go flying in any, like, awkward direction if they do that. But then they'll fire an arrow for the last hit in the direction it wants to go. And that'll reset the arrow where they want to go. And then before the rock uh, goes flying, they'll climb onto it. (laughs) And then the rock goes flying, like, 100 miles. And they land where they need to be. That's That's so amazing. The one I was watching was, like, where he did that. But then also... Uh, jumped right when the rock went up and that like kind of bounced him and then used the paraglider because normally the paraglider only t- like will only go so fast so he was actually like turbo rocketing across oh my the map on his paraglider just from this like kinetic yeah, energy that like that. actually worked a lot like, of the the paragliders and and uh, the paraglider and stasis and magnesis to a degree but that's more situational because you yeah. need metal mm-hmm. um even a lot of the like main powers in this game are toys and i yeah. think that's the way i feel and a lot of them are references too i don't like know uh, how much you two are into anime yeah. at all. Um, but like stasis is very similar to probably the most famous power from like JoJo's Bizarre Adventure, which is like the I world, yeah, which yeah. allows like the main villain of one of the the arcs to like stop time and then hit something a bunch while the time is stopped and then he restarts time and all that damage like takes place at once. Nice. And that's like stasis is the exact way of doing that. So I use stasis and I'll go up and you know I'll shout the attack name like I'm in an anime <laughs> nice. and I get to feel like a little kid playing with my yeah. action figures. I think that's an interesting thing too because we've all now described to some capacity how this game like makes us feel like a kid in some capacity. Discovery, play for me, it's just like I feel like I'm a kid in a playground or mm-hmm. like a, a big sandbox, actual sandbox. Um, but I think there's there's something interesting to that because you know. If we go all the way back, I remember reading about Shigeru Miyamoto's like inspiration for this actual game series for the original Zelda was about getting lost in the woods as mm-hmm. a child and like feeling both the sense of danger, the sense of wonder and awe that a natural setting can kind of cause. And I really felt, especially with this game, I mean, obviously not just a clever name, Breath of the Wild, there was so much 
uh, about this game's relationship to its natural setting, mm. uh, to its environment. And that environment was so carefully constructed, so um, carefully designed. I mean, is that... Can we, can we unpack that a little it, bit? It's funny, because like the, the way I keep seeing... I'm not the person to invent this, but the way I see some people refer to it um, is instead of Breath of the Wild, we'll put a little D in Breath, and then it's oh, Breath, of, Breath the of the Wild, because it's <laughs> such an extensive game. Yeah, mm. totally. Um, yeah. It's like, a natural, it's like, yeah, it's a natural world that is also like quite curated. Um, I think it's an interesting balance because it speaks, I think, to the game's Japanese roots because it reminds me of like Japanese gardens where like mm -hmm. there's a whole thing in Japanese gardens where it is made to feel very natural at the same time as being completely man-made and yeah. like completely like curated to the visitor's experience. Like, um, but it feels like you're in nature and it feels awesome. But it feels better than if you were staying in the middle of like some nasty woods with like <laughs> vines up to your head and like snakes and bugs and stuff. Have like, you ever like been to the woods? Like, um, yeah. like when I was um, a kid, <laughs> I, I used so. to. Sorry, that was like <laughs> I wasn't accusing <laughs> you of not you're going to two New Yorkers. I was like, man, I wasn't yeah, accusing you two of not going to the woods. I was like, <laughs> I saying, like the been. woods seem so pastoral <laughs> yeah. and nice when you think about them. But, like, there's this one time I went to the woods, and I did explore the woods as a kid and, like, enjoyed it. There's this one time I went to, like, the woods, beyond, like, behind my house when I was, like, uh, in the summer in between graduating from high school and wanting to go, go to college. It's like, you know what? I have an afternoon. I haven't gone to nature in a bit. Mm -hmm. I'm going to go to the woods and enjoy it. And I went in totally unprepared, <laughs> normal jeans, fucking like Chuck Taylors yeah, on, yeah, yeah. walking around in this long grass. I eventually, like, I, I get into this dark section oh, of the woods oh God, with yeah. no like sunlight. I hear creepy noises. I start to <laughs> run out. As I run out, I start getting chased by bees. What? I eventually like escape them. I guess they weren't too interested in me. And I'm like, okay, I finally made it home. I'm in my house. And then I, I, I go to use the restroom. And when I'm using the restroom, I find a tick on me. No. And then I, it's like the only time I've ever found a tick on me i'm not disgusting no, no, no. um but not to say people have ticks yeah. i'm just uh, saving my dignity um <laughs> i find a tick on me i have to like call my aunt who's a doctor and be like am i okay am I she's like you're okay <laughs> um and then i was just like i am never going to the woods again <laughs> woods so just terrible. Like, speaking to that experience like exactly. it, it, it it really like it, it gets what's nice about going to the woods, and yeah. it's still it's a idea, little contentious reason, yeah. with you because there's like durability systems and stuff. The game fights back in little ways, yeah. but you're not going to find a tick on yourself. Yeah, exactly, you, exactly. Well, when people, you play Zelda, brought more comparison with, almost, with theme parks, right? Like yeah. where it's like it's more like a Disney version of yeah. the woods than mm -hmm. it is the woods. Mm -hmm. Like it's or like you mentioned before, like the Central Park versus Pacific oh yeah. Park. I was going to bring up just like the idea that you know for me not have like the nature that I've had growing up in New York City has been my parks right and so Central Park versus um, Prospect Park is so interesting because when uh, Frederick Law Olmsted and uh, I think it was like something Richard or something uh, Vogue the two designers that designed both of those parks one Frederick Law Olmsted was just like a, an actual city designer city planner um, and the other the, the, the French guy was just a poet Mm. And so they worked together. Neither had ever designed a park, and they did Central Park in the style of the classic European garden, which speaks very much to the Japanese tradition of the Ikebana, of like not just flower arrangement, but of like garden arrangement, mm -hmm. where like ev 
in the design of Central Park, every major stone, every major tree was actually uh, planned, was, was put into a place by Olmsted and Vaux. And they actually sketched the types of trees that they wanted to see, and those trees were purchased from various lots around the country and imported to New York in the exact age, diameter, height that were described. So it's a very design park. Prospect Park, on the other hand, was also meticulously designed, but it was meticulously designed to look like an unplanned, rolling, natural space. And I feel like both of those design <laughs> systems or disciplines uh, were brought to bear in Breath of the Wild's world. And what I really appreciated, I think, about Breath of the Wild's world was that like, the overworld was the main character of the game. There was more thoughtful consideration put into the design of that space than I've ever experienced, I think, in any other map, in probably any other video game that I've ever played in my life. Like, GOAT level, like greatest of all time <laughs> level. That might be the best world design I've ever played because it's just like no no stone, no tree, no hill, no... Every direction that you walk in every single playthrough will likely yield a remarkable experience or space. I think it's it's interesting because a lot of people keep comparing this to Zelda 1. Mm, yeah. I don't necessarily think those comparisons are what are the strongest for me because like a lot of the... Um, the puzzles in Zelda 1 are cryptic to the point where they're not really puzzles. Yeah. You mm -hmm. either just need to stumble across them randomly, which means, which is almost, like, it's harder on, like, a surface level, but it's almost easier in a way yeah, because there's no thought process yeah. you have to go to. You just brute force it. Yeah. Um, or you have to follow a map, which is something that's interesting. I think that's a valid design in games. I think it was a little unplanned in Zelda 1 to, like, the degree that I don't like it. Not that they didn't account for Nintendo power existing, but, like, <laughs> I do think it's interesting to, like, have, like, a treasure map in real life next to you and then, like, have a game and you follow the treasure map in real yeah. life and, like, find it on the game. That's something I'd like to see more games totally. explore with. Totally. I think Zelda yeah. 1 did that to a degree. Um... And I think it succeeded to a degree, but I don't think that's what Breath of the Wild is. There's usually tiny little hints for you yep. to follow, and they're not so structured and so critical path and so scripted as to be like Ocarina of Time. But I think probably the greatest comparison within the Zelda series, there are a lot of comparisons outside of Zelda to me, greatest comparisons for me within the Zelda series for this game are Link to the Past. Yeah. And uh, Majora's Mask. Oh, yeah. Uh, Link to the Past, largely because I think that's how a lot of the overworld stuff looks at. Uh, turns out, because Link to the Past did a lot of stuff similar to how Zelda 1 did, but instead of you just, like, brute-forcing puzzles, there's tiny little hints for you yeah. to follow. So you'll, like, see a crack in stone, um, which a lot of Zelda has done. But just, like, you'll be going to a dungeon and you'll be passing by a mountain, and you'll see a crack in stone. It's like, this isn't where I'm supposed to go, but I'm going to go <laughs> bomb this wall in the cave. And then you walk in, and you like see uh, like a pit that you're supposed to come across, and you're like, okay, I'm going to make a note of this. And then later, when you get the hook shot, you're like, yeah. oh, I'll awesome. go across the pit, and then you find a great fairy inside, and it's like, toss something in. It doesn't say any more than that. It's just like, toss something in. So you toss in like your fire rod, it does nothing. Eventually, you toss in your bone. It's like, would you like to upgrade your bow? I'm like, oh, it's just a tiny little cool yeah. secret <laughs> I found on my way to the main dungeon. I think Breath of the Wild has a lot of those like natural side trackings this way, which doesn't really work via waypoints um, or like you know 
HUD marks on your mini map, but via you like noticing something in the world and yes. following it. And I think in that way, it kind of echoes back to the previous uh, point that you mentioned about this feeling like the most kind of like D and D like Dungeons yeah. and Dragons like. You know, I I've been in two D and D quests. I was a player for three years, and I'm now a DM for the last two years. And it's incredibly similar. The idea that like as a DM, you'll set up this intricate scenario. Um, and then your players will totally fuck it with their ideas. And mm-hmm. it's the most fun you'll have when someone's just like, and I decide to walk away from your big bad. <laughs> what what happens now? And you're like, oh my god. Yeah, I guess there's some environmental clue that you picked up on that you were just more interested in. Let's flesh that out. Mm-hmm. Now, D&D, there's a little bit more impro- improvisation that happens on the part of the DM. But it, in that incredible openness and flexibility uh, in Breath of the Wild, I definitely... Feel a lot of relationships. Uh, I mean, improvisation is really the key word there. Like, yeah. it's like you are like it's so. There's so few games that reward improvisation. Yeah, yeah. And this totally does. Where you're just like, oh, what if I try like you know throwing a bomb on this rock and it knocks that over, and then yeah. this chain reaction happens, and like that's and then that that is like such a specific uh, like um, activity that this game Absolutely. supports, and that's just so startling. Like that that, that the physics are that fleshed out and yeah. like run that deep that like you can do so many things that you would n- normally other game would just bounce off of like some invisible wall or like some and I think one of the major systems that allowed Zelda to really have that improvisation that flexibility is actually it's verticality strangely mm. enough like it's a real first for the game I mean Skyward Sword had like almost binary verticality it's like are you in the sky or are you on yeah, the it's earth? like superficial verticality yeah. it's just like two flat planes you could it's like a an old beat em up where like you yes. can choose between the front lane <laughs> exactly. and the back lane but there's pretty much no difference in the game. Might as well just have one lane and it would be better. Exactly. Because I, I experienced it very early in the game. Because I think we went to Zora first, right? Zora's... I went to, yeah. You went, I went to as well? To, yeah, okay. I went to it as well. Did you... I first? went to the Rito dungeon oh, first. Oh my gosh, nice. So, uh, it's interesting because I actually wound up in Gerudo Desert first and I was like, I'm not prepared to be yeah. in Zora. <laughs> no, it's so scary when you see it. You're like, I don't want to go in there. So, uh, I, uh, but it's interesting because the way I worked across the games, I worked across from west to east. Interesting. Um, and I didn't, like, I had a friend who her whole thing was exploring the entire world map before going to the dungeons. Instead, I, like, broke them up into four distinct parts hmm. and went, like, uh, southwest, decided southwest was too hard, <laughs> went southeast, then went southwest, then went uh, northwest, then went south, then went northeast in these little <laughs> chunks and like explored. The, I didn't do everything first, but yeah. I explored a good deal of side quests while I was there and also explored the main quests. So what I really liked about that is I almost had like this whole frontier while that I kept pushing across the border of the game where I was in the middle of like, you know, collecting berries for some old woman. But then it's that then I look at the map and I'm like, I wonder what's over there mm. in the the great unknown. Yeah, and it's like that. Link, go it, it, not go west, but like go east, <laughs> young boy. Yes, exactly. That's where I had. So um, so like the the Rito, uh, the bird people, bird person, uh, bird person village yeah. was my first stop. Uh, among that, so what I got from that was the really useful, oh, uh, favorite champion ability of the game for me first, which uh, is Ravali's Gale. So um, or like YouTubers like to joke Ravioli's Gale. Ravioli's uh, Gale. Because, you know, memes. Uh, <laughs> what is it? I got Ravali's Gale, which is my favorite power in the game because that immediately allows you to just get 
a strong vertical boost oh, right so away good. and so you can use it to traverse real easily because I love paragliding in this yeah. game it's like it's almost like sailing in Wind Waker yes. but way more adaptable totally. um, and, and enjoyable and you can change direction without going through menus mm-hmm. <laughs> um, yeah, and I feel like sailing in Wind Waker it's so different because it's so lateral and like it's so like there's only you're only sailing to go to an island to a destination right, right? and like, like I feel like uh, paragliding just like was so intuitive and joyful to do like and then was such an interesting like way to interact with the map because like it almost like there's a whole thing where like it um the map isn't explicitly waypointed like other open world games are so mm-hmm. you will literally just go to the top of a mountain or a cliff yeah. and look around or a tower and then be like that looks interesting glide and like, because oh, it's like, so good because <laughs> it uses your there's a certain joy to like using a vehicle too especially when the vehicle is like your best friend king buddy mm-hmm. um, <laughs> totally. but like what's interesting about the paraglider in comparison to that is it, it's so small it feels almost like a traditional inventory item mm. instead of a vehicle it just feels like part of your kit so you don't feel like you're just like I'm getting in the boat and then the boat is taking me somewhere but because you're using something that just feels like part of your kit and because it uses stamina while you do it it feels like instead of riding a vehicle and being taken to a place for you it's like no I did this yeah, this working. was me I yeah. this I'm riding this paraglider and I had to eat the stamina food to get yeah. by and well, so I feel like a clever boy yeah, a, a clever hero a clever with hero tunic yeah. yeah no that's really well said um I think like the verticality too. Uh, the reason I was going to bring up Zora um, a minute ago was just because like it was for me the first mainline quest that I was doing, or like the first post plateau mainline quest that I was doing, and I loved that the the guy, the like fishy guy, was like, "Yeah, Prince is waiting for you. Go on up, follow this path." Yeah. I was like, I just used the scope and was like, "There's some powerful looking enemies." And as we <laughs> talked before the the podcast, like I'm terrible like combat i haven't killed a single lionel or whatever so i was like oh this seems like a really powerful enemy i'm gonna just avoid uh-huh. and it's raining it's permanently raining that's like yeah. a feature of that like area mm-hmm. before you solve the the puzzle there so i was like how am i gonna do this i've got like low stamina. it's early game low stamina i don't want to fight these guys i'm like totally a pacifist in most games that i play so i was like i'm gonna just very slowly and meticulously try to climb around this mountain. Oh my god! And it while worked. it's raining, and it, and while it was raining, and it worked. It was just you had to be incredibly precise mm-hmm. about like your <laughs> ledge rests and stuff. Mm-hmm. And like I learned how to climb in the rain very early game because it can be done. Yeah, it just takes a lot of like patience. Mm-hmm. Um, so I just was like, it was incredible to me because that's like for me, and this is almost like the most we've ever talked about gameplay during one of our casts because oh, I think like the. The lore was like secondary. The gameplay systems allowed us all to really build our own story. You know how we overcame these different, you know, areas, these different challenges. So that that to me just was like such a revelatory experience because I'm like I've loved this series for so long. I'm loving this game mechanically. Okay, the character's telling me to go up this what looks like a combat challenge path, and I was like, I don't really like to play combat challenges. Well, let me see if I can sneak around. And the game was like, Of course you can. <laughs> you might have to take a little longer. Yeah, it's interesting because, um, and you can get the stealth suit right at the beginning. Oh right, yeah, yeah. Which is inter- something I wanted to bring up earlier that I totally forgot. I'm going into diversion. No, go, sorry. Go, go, go. Um, but you brought up Japanese gardens uh, early on. It's interesting that like the first town you visit in Link to the Past is Kakariko Village, super, like, traditional European fantasy town. 
Um, first town you visit in Ocarina of Time, it, well, no, you do see uh, your main area first. Um, and then you go to Hyrule Castle, yes. which is, again, super traditional European fantasy town, but more cosmopolitan this time. Mm -hmm. uh, the main town you visit first in Breath of the Wild, meanwhile, um, is also Kakariko Village. Right. But this is Kakariko Village before it's been repopulated by European fantasy people. This is the first <laughs> Zelda game we've had with a thriving Sheikah civilization. Yeah. So, like, the first... You can go to another town before it, and, in fact, I did go to Hateno before it because I saw the signs. It's like, I want to see what's over here. Yeah. But and the game, the like, urges you and pushes you to go to Kakariko Village first, which is this very Japanese town, yeah. and that's your introduction to like the world and your quest and mm. where you're supposed to go totally. which is just like um it's a small touch but it's like it's interesting that like i think it speaks to like the game's ethos um or maybe pathos uh, sure. that uh like the framing that it's put that it gives you when you're setting out on your quest is a very Japanese one instead Absolutely. of a European one like past games. That's done. a really, really great observation. I never mm -hmm. even noticed that the the name flip on Kakariko of reclaiming it essentially. Because yeah. it's like the houses have such a good like Shinto temple vibe to them, mm -hmm. like traditional Japanese architecture. I didn't even notice that's so a really, really good point. It's really interesting for me because I had last month I was in Japan, um, traveling for a few weeks, so like that was a big um, draw for me like when I was because I basically brought my switch and I was just playing it when I was on the bullet train in between nice. towns like so I played like a good maybe half of the game in Japan just because I had like a lot of like traveling time and lucky. yeah, yeah it, was, right. it was like lucky. amazing vacation because it was like Japan plus like getting to like play games oh, and so cool. it was like it was really great especially um at one point in my trip we did the Alpine route which is like this famous route where you kind of go to Matsumoto, it's like northwest of Tokyo, and you um, can take a bunch of trams over a mountain. And getting there, I was just like, at the same time in Zelda, I was like, I think going to like Mount Doom finally. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I was just like, oh, hot springs, like in Japan, <laughs> like like where I am now, like I'm going to a hot spring now, I'm also going to it in the game. And there's this fun parallel voyage where it's like, yeah, you really feel um, the creators kind of, um, I guess reflecting on their own country and their own experiences and if and it feels like a lot yeah like a very japanese game more so than any zelda i've played in the past yeah that's one of the things because nintendo is such like a global company at this point because it's like one of the the big three powerhouses like it can feel i think tempting for their games to maybe water down their japanese inspirations sometimes to try to hit like a more worldwide audience mm -hmm. Um, not to say they always do that. There's still a lot of like um, j very distinctly Japanese stuff in their games to be found there. But like Mario's like chief inspiration is like uh, Popeye. You know? Yeah, totally. Uh, Zelda's even chief inspiration originally, I would say, probably more like The Hobbit. Or, Less so Lord of the Rings, but maybe The Hobbit. I think also that Tom Cruise movie Legend. Mm -hmm. For some reason, the aesthetics of the the concept art for the first Legend of Zelda game, the gold cartridge mm -hmm. NES classic, reminded me of a still frame from that Tom Cruise movie, Legend, where I think it's Tim Curry famously plays that like red the skin big, the devil, devil with the like, phallus horns mm -hmm. and shit. <laughs> but yeah, Tom Cruise has this like 
you know, olive green tunic and like the linkish, like straight long hair. <laughs> it just feel it felt at least as sure, a child yeah. seeing those two images comparatively. That's a good very, comparison. very similar. The reason I bring up Hobbit is just like Link originally was this very small kind of dorky yeah. boy, which is like when people try to do grim and gritty Link, I don't really feel it. Oh, He's yeah. like a small sort of wide-eyed, dorky like. Uh, elf boy going yeah. on a quest. He's wearing a fucking sleeping cap. Exactly. You know? um, he's chill, man. He's not. He's not that pathos. Come on. Yeah. And um, it, which uh, we can talk about how that link contrasts with Breath of the Wild link a little bit because this is like suave, cool link. Suave. Uh, which I have mixed feelings about, but I'm getting on a tangent in my tangent. <laughs> but like, um, yeah. So like, there's these very Western inspirations for their game series, like. Metroid Alien um, and I feel like some of that to a degree is because they know their audience it's mo- almost like when Hollywood nowadays puts in nods to China in their movies because yeah. it's like we know uh, there's dirty. a big Chinese audience for us um, but this feels like not the first Zelda game because even like the bomb animations in Wind Waker are very clearly yes, Japanese brushwork but this feels like probably the Zelda game to most lean into its Japanese heritage for me, which I'm totally down with. Yeah, and I think to connect that dot, I think before we started the recording, you mentioned the the sort of the experience that you had um, tracing some of the Japanese sort of religiosity and religious meaning that's often ascribed to mountains and connecting that back to the game. I mean, I definitely, like, I'm not an uh, academic on Buddhism. <laughs> yeah, okay, Buddhism yeah. So I mean, <laughs> caveat. I will caveat that, like, by just, like, my touristic yeah, uh, experience in Japan and, like, going to temples and in Hong Kong as well, like, visiting, like, the giant Buddha there. Um, it was really when it started occurring to me, I was like, it's interesting because the giant Buddha in Lantau Island in Hong Kong is basically on top of a mountain, like, and I'm like, yeah, this is, like, like this is like so on purpose you know like why would they build it up here like because you have to climb a bunch of stairs to get to this this um relic this like link to um you know a deity or afterlife or and whatnot and um in zelda like climbing the mountains and the shrines themselves like feel like you are um embarking on a journey or embarking on this like trial like the shrines at trials to like become closer to whatever the deity of that world is like the goddess um Mm -hmm. that everyone refers to and it's interesting too because i like the 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 contrast with western religion where like i was thinking about western religion like christianity where um god is always like very detached and um this sim like very symbolic and very like not part of the world like uh, it's like in scripture it's in he's in heaven blah 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 but in like buddhism like uh there's so much of God in everything, like, and, like, people ascribe it to, like, or people, like, attach it to real-world meaning, like, that stream is a God, that mm-hmm. mountain is oh, a God. interesting. Um, Shintoism, too. Yeah, absolutely. Almost even in, like, Greek mythology, to a degree, mm-hmm. um, because, like, the, the gods originally, they didn't live... Olympus wasn't a separate dimension. Olympus was just yeah. that mountain tall, over tall there. Mountain. Exactly. Yeah. And again, the mountain um, symb- like symbology or, or significance. Like, Not to take yeah. it away from its Japanese. No, I think that's true too. Like a lot, yeah, other religions besides like uh, Buddhism and Shintoism, like have mountains having importance, and of course yeah, they yeah. would because they're so like grandiose and like it hits on like these older. Um, Buddhism is still widely practiced but like Shintoism not as much mm-hmm. obviously Greek mythology we call it mythology, mythology there's yes. still like neo-pagans and stuff but like 
there are certain religions that aren't as heavily practiced anymore. These older, more polytheistic ones mm -hmm. where like the world in itself is kind of a deity mm -hmm. and Breath of the Wild really leans into that a lot. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think I like really that. there's there's also kind of themes of patriarchy versus matriarchy that we can use to separate. Because I think you're right, this Western male, like, dominant absentee father god <laughs> that is present in architecture and, you know, the squared off churches and the spires and shit, but not in nature. He because didn't we've even conquered. visit himself. He sent his son. <laughs> he sent, he sent his, his son. agent. Yeah. He sent his agent. <laughs> Which, granted, if you believe the Trinity is just, like, him through a different name. Exactly. But the tough. point is, it's like, you, you, he's at least working through an avatar. It's yeah. like, why you gotta play Earth like a video game guy? <laughs> totally. And a disposable avatar. Meanwhile, that. like, Breath of the Wild, you're just, like, walking around, suddenly you hear shrine music and you look up and, oh, it's a fucking dragon. Yeah. Right here, I can see it. It's amazing. I, and I found there were so many moments, uh, so many themes of religion throughout the experience. I definitely felt that. And, of course, 120 shrines, uh, which are, of course, you know, places of worship and places of sort of spiritual power, but I actually found it way more in the element of the, the high design touch on the overworld. Like we were talking before the podcast, it's just like, there were so many moments, and I think in particular the way that the Korok seed puzzles are mm -hmm. set up for the player to find, those were the moments where I was like, ah, that's the, like, for me, that was the clearest place where any sort of symbolic god or designer's hand became incredibly um, legible to me. Where, you know, the Korok seed puzzles are like 900-something of yeah. these seeds hidden all throughout the world, and you begin to notice... Um, these spaces within the game, discrete, like microspaces, uh, a collection of rocks underneath, uh, uh, like underneath some trees in a grove. And you're like, those rocks are definitely forming a pattern. That is a star-shaped rock pattern. Mm -hmm. There's no <laughs> way that nature would have dropped those rocks into that position. Wait a minute, one of the points of the star is missing a rock. You go drop a rock in the point of the star, poof, a Korok appears. And the Korok, even in themselves, these like hidden agents of nature, these, like, mm -hmm. these seedlings of holy trees, essentially invisible to the human eye until you solve this puzzle, it really started to feel like, uh, again, that Olmsted and Vaux designing Central Park, that uh, the, the entire idea of intelligent design um, in our own you know, world and Western religions, that to me was the clearest space that religion inhabited in the game were like the Korok seed puzzles. Yeah. Um, and, and it has that design of relationship or that comparison we made to The Witness, like because like Jonathan Blow is very into Buddhism. Yeah. And he like made that a big big part of his game and like so much of that game is looking at the world in a different way like than you normally would. But unlike The Witness, the Korok seeds are 900 completely optional puzzles. Mm -hmm. And The Witness will say, you're not holy enough. You haven't solved these puzzles enough to like progress to this next area. This wire does not... Your, your cognitive you know, ability to get closer to the path to salvation or pure Buddha or whatever has not yet allowed you access to this beautiful garden you can see but not touch through this fence. And that's where, you know, after countless mm. hours of loving <laughs> The Witness, I love The Witness. I still haven't beaten it, you know? I, I, you can't you can't reach the critical path end of the game until yeah. you solve a certain amount of puzzles. I could octo balloon my way now that I'm finding <laughs> it. I could octo my balloon my way right to the devil and you, you know, know and, slay you his know, miasma. The game could say, "Oh, well, that's cheating the game. You're clearly not intelligent enough." But it's like, or or you're clearly not spiritual enough. Yeah. It's like, but I am just through this other method, um, and. 
you know, is that, like, who's to say which one is, like, not to be, like, a shitty college professor and be like, let's break this down, really. But, like, who's to say which one is more valid, like, what the developer wants you to do or, like, what the player brings to it. It's almost sort of like a... Like when you're directing a play, I hi, I have a theater degree. Um, that was a really great. Caveat, I also have a history degree. Okay, um, but like when you when you're directing a play and you're working with your actors, you can go in with like a set strict plan for what you want your actors to do, and they can follow that plan. But oftentimes, the best bits you'll discover are things your actors bring in to work with you. And like when you, and then you, if you foster those decisions, you do need to still do it with a guiding hand, or else the play will fall to like totally structureless mess. Mm -hmm. But like if you take in input from your actors who have also been studying the text and learning their characters and allow them to do this cool thing they think might work and explore with it for a little bit, you'll sometimes get a more engaged... Oh, it's kind of a messy adjective. You'll sometimes get a more meaningful show out of it at the end than if you had just, like, gone strictly by the plan you meant to do at the beginning. And so I feel like almost, like, allowing the player to bring in, like, an actor, their thing that you might not have even noticed... um, as opposed to like the witness being like, no, you have to do this strict, here, critical yeah. path. Um, it's its own sort of value, its own sort of like mortal salvation, yeah. as opposed to like strictly following the caste system, which is racist bullshit anyway. <laughs> they both have like an, a, a, an attachment to the world, like a, a love of that natural um, landscape and that, and that curated natural landscape. But they, and they like you know Zelda, you started off. He walks to the edge of the mountain and is like, look at this world! This is it is so good! Yeah. And you're like, okay, I believe you. But, um, <laughs> like, you can... Like, in Zelda, yeah, it's like... It's an exa- accidental like, a discovery. Like, you're just like, oh, yeah, I gotta go kill Ganon, blah, blah, blah. And then you're like, oh, this world is super magical. Well, <laughs> like, this- like uh, weirdly enough, if, if, the, if the witness and its critical path or its insistence upon a critical path is its sort of rote path to salvation or the path of Buddha or whatever, mm-hmm. then Zelda to Breath of the Wild to me takes on a bit more of like a transcendentalist experience, but it's still like a Christian transcendentalist, like the original like Thoreau, like still based in Christianity transcendentalism. But this idea that like we're self-made deities in a way, we're existing within a, a frame or a structure that is greater, of course, than our own individual God power, but that we have the capacity to find that God within ourselves. And I love the theater comparison that you brought up because it is a perfect touchback to the importance of improvisation mm-hmm. as a mechanic in this game. Like I love the improv yeah. mechanic. That, like I can't not the improv conversation yeah, that you yeah. brought up too. That's totally. also a point that I hadn't really. Like, it's a great word to ascribe to it. And I come from a. I did a bunch of theater, not a theater degree, but a bunch of theater. But I did even more improv, and I find that those tools of like openness of saying yes to whatever scenario you're in, it just. It just creates a perfect kind of relationship to the to the mechanics and to the systems that this game presents you, which is why like I really enjoy coming back to the game. Like I, I did start playing again just after I beat like before we started recording, because um, I beat again and I put it down. I started playing other games, um, but I came back to it and I was like, I wonder if I'm going to have the same drop off that I experienced with a lot of other games where I've completed the critical path. And I'm like, I'm getting too over this shit. I don't <laughs> want to replay games. Give me new experiences. <laughs> but I'm loving it. Like I I I boot the game back up. I'm right outside of the chamber where I slayed Ganon mm-hmm. on the last playthrough, and I was like, "Oh, okay." So I guess that 
that just can happen again, cool. I fly off the, the uh, Hyrule Castle, and I just find myself in like some grove uh, in Hyrule Field that I'd never seen before. Mm-hmm. I realized I had missed a, a shrine. Like, I just had walked by it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, silly me. And this game is still just this basic system of interacting with the overworld is still rich with possibilities. Mm-hmm. And that, to me, is one of the greatest joys of, of the game overall. It's like any 15 minutes I choose to play this game, I can just do some weird, wacky stuff. I can roll that log down the hill into the river and try to, you know, try to surf it, whatever. Sorry. Mm-hmm. So it's just like fun. It's just fun for me to be back in it. Yeah, before we get into this, I just like want to like go back to the transcendentalist point sure. really quickly because I think that was a really great uh, conversation that you started there. And there's just like one point I wanted to mention there, uh, specifically related to the Koroks, which mm. I think is really cool. Um, just like even when you're in like Ganon's castle, which is just Hyrule Castle, mm-hmm. but now Ganon has it. Yeah. Uh, even when you're within Ganon's castle, which is the most foreboding like area in the game, it has its own separate music track, yeah, which mm-hmm. I can't remember. Is that the traditional like Zelda this overworld hints of theme, the Zelda or overworld. like it like brings uh, it in as like a motif? Yeah, it's a tone. Yeah. It's or a, it's like it's the yeah. old Hyrule Castle theme from Link to the Past. I think so. But, yeah. yeah, and then it also has this dark miasma in it. But even within this like very hopeless area, there's like maybe five or so Korok seeds yeah. you can find, They're and everywhere. as soon as you find them. Uh, the foreboding music starts and you get the like playful Korok coming back like you got me and it's just like a complete tonal whiplash but I don't think it's a bad thing instead mm-hmm. I think it it really means something that even in this like um, really sort of uh, corrupted place this very unnatural place I don't think it's like a coincidence that Ganon's uh, castle is like the most industrial area in the yeah, game. Totally uh, space. There's like five or so very playful, very kind, very teasing, like natural beings that are just enjoying life. They've come to hell just to play hide and seek. And, and I think that just by existing there as a group of people living their own lives, they are corrupting that corruption mm-hmm. and almost in a way like bringing it back to what it's supposed to be yeah. and owning it and appropriating it in a way that I think like again just by existing as natural mortal beings they're creating their own sort of spiritual significance within this very dark place. It's wonderful, wonderful point. Well, it's like when um, when I first read about people like this, like the person who discovered all 900 in like the first week or whatever and I was just like... God. Uh, well, what, what do these people for, do? I mean, for me, it was like it was like they quote, yeah, exactly. It was the equivalent of being like, I mapped every vertice on this 3D model, like in this game. Like it feels like that this whole like Deus Ex Machina, like they're like like to scour the world for all these Karaks is to like see a different world to than, be to um, become Doctor Faustus to have ultimate yeah. power. I mean, but it's like, but it's like almost like. The the very act of trying to collect them all, I feel like, takes you out of that of the game. How it effectively is able to communicate what it is. Like, it's interesting because the game is playful about that in a way too. Because I've been phrasing a lot of this game's open world stuff, but it's interesting. I'm usually very suspicious of open world sure, games, which course. we can talk about more later. And yeah. I don't think Breath of the Wild entirely. There are things I don't like about this game, believe sure. it or not. I don't think Breath of the Wild entirely breaks that, but it's probably the open world game I like most. But um, 
it still like has it out for certain open world conventions in a way like to a degree the Korok seeds we've been praising them but there are times when they're just like a very traditional open world collectible and yeah. it's like check them off the laundry list all right this is boring i don't want to go through and find all your coffee cups alan wake yeah exactly. uh, <laughs> to a degree the korok seeds your are david kind lynch of, references yeah to a degree the korok seeds are kind of like that but then the game knows it, and the Korok seeds are very heavily hinted to basically be pieces of shit. Yeah, totally. <laughs> and the ultimate reward for collecting all 900. Is a giant is piece of shit, so it's almost kind of, of a, a... It's a mocking, bitter approach to video game collectibles that I wouldn't have yeah. expected from Nintendo. I was Nintendo. telling that to uh, Tubby about um, the Tarrytown quest, side quest. Oh, um, that's one of the best quests. <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's great, but it's also that exact thing where it's like the you keep coming back to the guy and he's like, I'll give you more stuff, I guess, sure. More <laughs> like, stuff but do. it always feels like it feels like you're just like going out of your way like to do this side quest. Like it's very right. capital S side yes, quest. Yes, it is the capital S you know? side quest. Of the but game. I think I don't think that Breath of the Wild necessarily redeems the more like video game aspects of that but i think it softens the blow a little bit in the same way majora's mask does by populating the, that side quest with these uh very distinct evocative personalities yeah. that you get to know and it culminates in like a wedding and it's, it's a like, really great oh concept. i sent my child off and yeah. now he's getting married <laughs> it really is one of the better endings of a side quest mm-hmm. in the game I and then it just exists there as like this group of outcasts that you helped build a town for <laughs> and it's like oh there's the little Rito guy who's like, I hate you, mom. I don't want to work for your store. I want to open my own store. And you first meet him and you're like, bratty teen, whatever. And then later you invite him to Terrytown and he does open his own store. It's like, you know what? Oh, right. You did it. You went out and lived for yourself. You you put words by it. I respect you. Sony bomb arrows. And then it just continues to exist as this great like post-game reward because Mm -hmm. it's so hard to find like bomb arrows elsewhere or like Mm -hmm. fire arrows elsewhere. You can just go to this guy whenever and he has all the arrows whenever you want. Rare materials Mm -hmm. too. You can buy diamonds, you can yeah. Yep. No, I definitely loved it. And I think the thing that struck me, I mean just sort of we should maybe transition over to uh, discussing kind of more of the lore because we've been this is a game I think that's made of gameplay mm-hmm. before any other like before any other system this is a game about playing it right mm. but there is a story there is a lore um, and there are themes uh, within that so I just wanted to sort of open it up to you guys obviously like with what do we think of the lore of this game in particular like well, I know Michelle has some. Yeah, yeah. okay. So, You're gonna put me on. Why not? I, mean, okay. I, I can speak as well, but I want to. Well, do you want to open up with positive notes or negative notes? Sure. I, wh- however, we want to go. We can go. Well, you. I, for me, like I, th- I felt like one of the biggest um, themes of the game, and you know, this is a bridge to talking about the lore. But one of the biggest themes of the game that expressed itself in all of its various systems and in its plot to me was just impermanence. And it's funny that we talk about religion. It's funny that we've been talking about like any sort of spiritual side to this or paths to salvation or whatever but i mean this is a game that has a lot of rebirth in it it has a lot of uh sort of the in the systems sense the degradation of your weapons is a constant uh proof of impermanence like everything but the master sword can be broken and even the master sword can disappear from your inventory for minutes at a time if you overuse it 
and um, even the Blood Moon, right? The Blood Moon that resets all of your progress of murder <laughs> across uh, Hyrule. Uh, this brings all of your enemies back to life. This kind of impermanence, uh, to me, became one of the most lasting and valuable uh, contributors to like my great time in the game. It's one of the reasons why I think I'm so excited about coming back to it post-Critical Path, is because... Honestly, you know, the, the last boss still exists, right? Like, the game as a game as a game, with a capital G, is always going to be the same loop. And from waking up in the, the Chamber of Rebirth to now having my last autosave be at the door to the final boss, those two spaces are actually pretty much equal. They, and they don't matter. You know, you're talking to an atheist, and you're talking to someone who, like, does not believe that there is a path to salvation, or does not believe that there is an afterlife. The theme of... Him, Permanence really played heavy on me, and in a good way, good heavy. Um, and then, of course, uh, to transition to talking about it, not as a gameplay topic, but as, as lore, it's all over the world. The world is in shatters. It's, it's crumbled. The calamity has happened, you know? Everything uh, dies. Everything moves on. And a hundred years later, there are a few people who remember and experienced the calamity and survived it, but they are they've they've moved past it you know the the great sort of uh the great lore uh of the game is already old news and in that way finally it created this incredible wonderful positive sense of impermanence for me well also i feel like this like it's this ability or this like desire to move on that's really interesting the conflict there because like all the quest, quest giver characters are are still attached to that calamity like they are still reliving like it, hurt and by it yeah hurt by it they want zelda to be free etc um but that like that doesn't that can't happen until you kill ganon but to kill ganon is to basically end that or unpause that button yeah the hundred years feels like a pause button like it, it feels like nothing like like while you were sleeping nothing actually nothing really changed and nothing can change until ganon goes away like so it's yeah. like it's kind of interesting like like that impermanence factor like it feels like your your the world's on pause like yeah. it feels like the world's in this like um kind of border state this transitionary state like where it's not like it's not it's not able to move on until no, you until you finish the game yeah. Exactly, but it's but it's still, at the same time it's there for your enjoyment. <laughs> like it's like you can't enjoy it after you finish the game. Then you're like kicked out of it. Yeah, there is no world without the adventure. Yeah, it's interesting. It's weird um, because I think you bring up a good point that like when you beat the game, it resets to like your first save before you beat the game, and the world exists in a continual state of like apocalypse. Yeah. At the same time, I feel like a fucking asshole going around <laughs> doing all this like meandering shit, knowing Ganon is still out there and Zelda, like the brave, yeah. like loyal princess <laughs> she is, is it. still constantly sitting there doing her job. A link is like, all right, hold on, I gotta find this guy's chicken. Let me just take a hundred hours. <laughs> yeah. Let me just hold on. Yeah. yeah. Which, um, I mean, I think the impermanence thing is probably the more important of the two, but like personal feelings as a player i like am someone who gets emotionally attached to characters i am someone who like cares about like what my character wears i do like the whole aesthetic parts of game and i feel weird almost like i'm abdicating my duty sometimes by like never being able to exist in like a post ganon exploration of this world 
Yeah. But it's, it's interesting too because like I'm thinking about it also now meta narratively where like uh, going back and watching speedrunners where it's like it's interesting to watch a speedrunner because a speedrunner is literally Link waking up and being like fuck let's I go let's be, I'm gonna yeah. go let's go oh, I, fuck. whatever like it's like Link not having amnesia basically <laughs> like you wake up and you're like I got three, star, three hearts I can do go. this yeah, exactly. and then you just go and kill Ganon and then you save Zelda and that's like the um, optimal technically route like but then there's uh, Link discovering who Link is, like mm-hmm. by doing all this stuff. It's like, like to be, if you start the game, you have no personality. But if you play hundred oh, hours of the game, you gain a personality. Yeah, you like you're like a personality. you play jokes on people. You're mean to people. You're nice to people. You're like <laughs> you know you gather equipment and loot and food and learn recipes. Actually, wait, Link was a dick. <laughs> Link is kind of a dick in this. When you, get the, the, when you get the like um. Gerudo outfit, which is like one of my favorite. Oh, that the cross-dressing stuff. Yeah. The, the I don't that, even like, know how much you? that is Link being a dick. So much as the developers putting in every transphobic stereotype exactly. they can think of in twenty exactly. minutes. Exactly. <laughs> you have the whole yeah. like joking about like man in a dress, traditional like caricature jokes. Yeah. You have the jokes about like haha, I'm going to out you, and that is funny. You have the jokes where like the the cross-dressing character you meet. Um, I don't know this character's identity. I'm just going to say cross-dressing. Mm-hmm. The cross-dressing... The other one, right? The On the rooftop? The yeah, one yeah, you yeah. meet on the rooftop. Yeah. When you meet that character, um, like, they're very predatory towards mm-hmm. you. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, mm-hmm. And then you have also, like, the stereotype of, like, you know, uh, someone sneaking into a women's only place as opposed to just, like, you know belonging there yeah. because they're a woman regardless of what you say <laughs> Nintendo yeah. um, and then with like this whole like 30 minute side quest of like making fun of this character Link then does the same thing exactly. multiple times over the game and it is treated as heroic like fuck you well, Link was kind of a dick yeah. yeah it just dawned on me I was like Link is kind of a dick yeah. Yeah. but I mean also um, just like Link in this game it's it's interesting the way they portray him. Um, of course, Link has always been very light on character, but yeah. like uh, I mentioned earlier in the podcast, that like there is a traditional Link outfit that you can get without amiibo in this game, but it is something you have to very much work towards. Um, this isn't really a Link who like works in that outfit. I don't really see him. Wearing the dorky sleeping cap green and tunic. like green tunic, Peter like cosplaying Pamela, as Link. <laughs> whatever. Um, I see him. He's like he's already gone on a quest. He failed it. He's old and grizzled, and now this is like his solid snake coming out of retirement. <laughs> I'm gonna. One I'm more job. I'm the expert. I have one more job yeah, to exactly. do. Right. Um, and or like his uh, guts or like Samurai Jack from season five. Yes. This game is very much like that. He loses his sword. Evil awesome. continued on. But um, this game is very much like that. This is like you know my quest has gone on too long and now I'm old and bitter. I'm like that's not really Link to me. And like maybe that would work in another game. But like one of the issues I have in this game, and then and then when you have Link and he's talking to NPCs, his like denials of quests are usually very sarcastic and I'm, I'm like having trouble thinking of them on the spot because there are like hundreds of them 
But uh, I remember like responding to a lot of them being like, that doesn't sound like something Link would do to me. That's kind of like you can request, you can deny the request. That's fine. But you don't need to be an asshole <laughs> yeah, about, don't it. Think about it. Um, You're a great hero. Yeah. yeah. And then he keeps like journeying around, like just taking his time while Zelda's fighting, you know, doing, being the woman in the background who doesn't get enough attention, but doing more work. Yeah. I feel like um, we we're finally so close to actually having a real characterization of Zelda. It was so close, but it just... It mm-hmm. But by giving but her this... more character, it becomes more problematic. Yeah. <laughs> by making her more rounded. I want to get into that, but I just want to like finish saying this Link is very much... I feel like he's kind of uh, separate from the way the world is designed in a little bit, because I think this very wide, appreciative world that we've been talking about would be a great thing to put, like, the wide-eyed, you know, I want to be a hero, shonen protagonist, Wind Waker Link into. Oh, yeah, Toon Link. Or, exactly. like, the, you know, Young Link into, uh, not Majora's Mask Young Link. That is oh, also a one-more quest, guys. Exactly. I think it's done better in that game. Yeah. Um, because the game is very explicitly built around it. But I think the the way you explore the world in this game, which is very much like, you know... Uh, like a child going through the woods that we mentioned earlier um, is separate from this almost sort of grizzled action hero link they're building. Yeah. Um, and I I feel like I, I would like this link better in a different game, but like for me that it's simplistic, but for me that wide-eyed sort of adventurer link was very special to me because like yeah. when I was a teenager I had an issue um, as I think a lot of you know so-called gifted students do of being kind of arrogant and a jerk about intelligence because you know I don't have physicality to lean on so I have to say no well I'm smart and, and that validates me as much as your popularity does and I'm going to be rude about it now um <laughs> And I, I was uh, really into Zelda games at those times, and I thought, well, you know, Link is smart, too. His whole games are built around solving puzzles and intellectual challenges, but when he goes into a dungeon, he doesn't immediately think that he knows the layout. He starts out with a blank slate. Mind is like, okay, well, this could go any number yeah. of ways. I'm going to slowly unpack this puzzle box and take it as it comes instead of like going like, oh, this eye thing on the door is probably nothing. No, this is the real thing I saw when I came in. I'm smart. I'm going to go there and like wasting his time forever. Mm-hmm. So he's like, no, this probably means something. He's a mechanic. Yeah, I just yeah. like, he's very much takes things as he comes mm-hmm. in those games. And obviously I'm characterizing a lot of a very blank character here but like the way you approach like intellectual challenges in zelda puzzles as a teen for me helped me overcome my arrogance a a little bit um because i thought well you know i if i don't go in assuming i know the solution already but rather take the solution as it comes that is actually like the more mature way to handle it and that's actually you know going to lead me to the solution quickly and so i sort of mellowed out a little bit by identifying with adventurer link you know toon link's kind of a mellow character but this link is kind of high strung and i don't necessarily (laughs) see high strung link fully appreciating the shrines that he's going into you know that's fair i think that's totally fair high strung link skips through the shrine and 
and animation. High strung, <laughs> high strung link realizes you can turn your controller upside down on some of those physics puzzles, uh-huh. and it will flip the entire labyrinth. <laughs> Which I absolutely <laughs> love as as like a a mechanic, but I um I do love being able to fuck the game. I just yeah. this link again. I can't really see him. In the sleeping cap, and you know, I like yeah, shit really like that. Thing. This one's got the top knot, or like the, the back, the hipster back knot yeah. thing. Ponytail okay. going. Yeah. This link hangs out in coffee shops. Exactly. We're uh, a little over, but okay. Um, any any parting thoughts, you guys? You wanted to unpack Zelda a little. Yeah, bit? I want to unpack Zelda a little bit. I sure. also want to unpack open worlds in general, if we have time. Sure. I don't want to take a few more minutes. Yeah. Spend it's too much, but. Um, I spent a lot of time talking about Link there, but I think the big failing for lore in this game with me is probably how they handle Zelda. Sure. Um, Because I think in general, I like the lore. I like the impermanence. I like the religious approach to the world. I like how Ganon is sort of a more, a less concrete, polluted force as opposed to like a guy. Um, An actual physical boar man. (laughs) Yeah. Um, I... I like so much of what this game is trying to do, but I think when the game tries to build it out into like actual cutscenes and dialogue, I think it shoots itself in the foot a little bit. Like I said, like the dialogue it gives Link doesn't fit the actions he does in yeah. the game. Um, and it's interesting. I think the main lore thrust, the main storyline thrust of this game, if you actually go through and collect all the memories and whatnot, is actually Zelda's story right. as opposed to Link. Which I really appreciate, but the character arc they take her through is something I have contention with. Because her whole thing uh, in at the beginning of her arc is that she doesn't have her traditional Zelda magic powers that she normally would have. And instead she has, like, she's an academic, she has interest in science and technology, and she wants to study... Um, and then her father is like, "No, you can't yeah. do that. You That's have to a dick, go." Right? That's yeah, such a dick. You can't be a smart woman. Yeah. You have to study magic and religion, <laughs> yeah. and you know support. No yeah. Don't play DPS. You have to play Mercy. You're a girl. Exactly. Um, exactly. And to a degree, and you would think that this is like the setup for a traditional Disney princess. I want more story where like mm-hmm. she gets liberated. You know, by the end, like. Well, Mulan, Disney princess. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> she gets liberated by the end by breaking out of this rigid system. But there are moments where it tries not to do this. But in a lot of ways, I think the game almost comes down on the dad's side oh, after building him to be up to be a dick. Because he says, Zoda, don't study these guardians. And then Zoda's like, I'm going to study the guardians, though. And then the guardians blow up the world. It's like, oh, well, I guess the woman shouldn't have studied yeah, science, have right? Give education. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's true. There is, like, the, the payoff. Is, or not even payoff. Like, the, the resolution of her arc is mm. it's quite terrible. Honestly. Yeah, the resolution of her arc, though, goes beyond that, though. Because it's yeah. all about her learning to play second fiddle to Link. Yep. Because you see this scene in, in, like, one of the earlier memories where she's, like, in the Gerudo Desert... And she's sleeping and tuckered out from trying to train. And she's being, like, cuddled by Urbosa, which is just sweet. And I love it. I'm doing a heart with my hands right now. <laughs> um, and Link is there, like, watching. And Ur- Urbosa basically turns to Link and is like, you know she hates you, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah. Because you can use the Master Sword and she can't access her hero abilities. And she feels bad about that. And um, you would think then as a player would be like, all right, well, that this is building up to her unlocking her hero abilities, right? And she does, 
But that's not like a heroic reclaiming of her character because once you beat Ganon, the hero of... In fact, her hero abilities, like her unlocking them, isn't really related to her arc either. They just happen randomly. Like well, she's to save you, basically. Yeah. They're yeah. in service to Link. That's, they, that's exactly she, right. They only unlock to save Link's life. So when Link's done, then that they're done as well. Yeah. Like, she yeah. never exists as like her own hero, which is what she very much wants to be. And then when you get to the end of the story and you see the little post credit scene where they're like exploring through the forest um and it's like we're gonna rebuild Hyrule and and make it better even she turns to you and she's like I feel like my powers aren't quite as strong as they once were um and I can't hear the voice in the sword anymore which I don't know if it's a reference to Skyward Sword but like clearly she's not as powerful as she once was and then she turns to Link and she basically says but I'm okay with that because you're here and then like the game and that's like the last line and the game ends with like this big sweeping zelda score and i'm like that's not a majestic moment that's a sad moment for her because her whole character arc then that thing she was sad about with urbosa which is i can't be a hero she did unlock her powers but she was never able to fully recover that she or like arcs to, away from it. Yeah, she yeah. goes towards it and then she does Whoop. move away to her powers being weak yeah. again and her final resolution to that conflict she opened wasn't I can be a hero now. It's more like I'm going to accept that I'm never going to be the hero I want to be. Happy music. Yeah. You know, yeah, it's I like, she graduated like, her dissertation so that she can like be <laughs> raise her kids or something. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, she 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 dropped out to get married. Yeah. Which yeah. if you have to do that, totally fine. Video yeah, games yeah, are yeah, real totally life. Whatever. But still, I mean, I think it's fans have been clamoring for a Zelda story for a very, very long it's time. It's such there a... were even early rumors that this protagonist, that this link would actually be a mm-hmm. woman. And that just shows how brutally high school or middle school most the like the fans of these games are because it was Link with a ponytail and I think that's the only reason that that mm-hmm. even got started mm-hmm. like had more effeminate features of face and a ponytail sure. but honestly I think it's time like w- w- there's two DLCs planned right the first one they just announced mm-hmm. all the details of it's like a challenge dungeon some extra Link costumes but they're you know teasing that the second uh, DLC is going to have a significant uh, impact upon the story that it's going to be an actual story DLC with like new areas and new things to explore. I mean, how amazing would it be if there were a wholly new playable character? If you could be Zelda and she interacted with the world And that's something a lot of games do for their post-games, too. Like, you play Zero in Mega Man X or whatever. And then he plays differently. Or you play Knuckles or whatever. He plays differently. Or Ellie from The Last of Us. You know, that would be really awesome. It'd be cool to, like, have elemental magic, you know, or to have something that Zelda... Some some Zelda way of approaching this ridiculous world. I think that's a good solution-oriented approach that I wasn't necessarily (laughs) thinking of. I was mostly just mad. Because I think, like, that would be a good way to do it. They're probably not going to do it. I I would love if they did that. But I just think this way of handling Zelda, like, in light of so many people pushing for female protagonists, like, this is probably the Zelda game where people have pushed for female protagonists the most, and then it's, like, most built out and structured story content is strictly a rebuttal to that, saying, no, you can't have a female protagonist. This is the Link story. This is the Link story. It's like, yeah. and, but Link is such yeah. like a. I was giving him a character earlier, but like Link is such like a non-character. No. They don't have to be married no. to that. They could just do the Pokemon thing. That's true. And the, people say, well, why does Link specifically need to be a girl and not Mario? It's like, well, this is a game very much about like exploring the world as you and like 
approaching it in your own way it's like well then why specifically be tied to one gender that's why pokemon opened up another yeah. gender you know it's far more tied to the player's experience than it is to link's experience like mm-hmm. he's yeah. totally a cipher and it, it just shows that the developers are still wanting that you know cipher to um to support a male player versus mm-hmm. a female player or, do i have time to make one more point or? Yeah. okay this will be our closing point for okay sure. but um before Breath of the Wild came out, like my colleague over at Kill Screen, uh, Jess Joho, wrote an article which got a little bit of pushback about Linkle, which was the yeah. character that they released in Hyrule Warriors, which was supposed to be sort of an answerer to the calls for, for the female Link. And there were a lot of people who were excited about Linkle, and I was a little bit excited about Linkle to begin with. But her response was actually sort of a suspicious take yeah, of Linkle, sure. which uh, in light of Breath of the Wild, I uh, especially, I think, was really valid, valuable to have because her take was basically fans have been wanting a female Link and Nintendo is basically giving them table scraps yes. with Linkle by giving them a female Link in a side series who isn't the hero who can't use the sword, who's basically not even Link, but basically someone cosplaying exactly. as Link, um, uh, who uh, doesn't dress exactly like Link, but basically but wears the much more cuter version of yeah. Link's outfit, who doesn't fight with a sword, but fights from distance yeah, with crossbows, yeah. which is kind of cool, but also like sort it's of... It's not Link. It's yeah. just not Link. Oh, it's extra, not... Extra feminized. It's also not Link, but like yeah. bows in media are feminized Absolutely. in a way because they prevent women from having direct approach. They're, again, more of a support item, yep. uh, which is why I have issues with Hunger Games. I have other sure. issues with I mean, there's also the <laughs> historical context of the Amazonian warriors, yeah. right? Like the the pow- like the only, I think, power example. Or even Athena, mm-hmm. right? No, was it Pallas Athena that had the bow? I don't know, but there's definitely but the point there's is, a feminized bow for sure, absolutely. You Nintendo thinks that they've done a good job at being feminist with a yeah. sort of, you know, piecemeal uh, side series, very marketable waifu, not even a great yeah. in that series female version of Link. Um, and I don't think they can get away with that being enough anymore, right. especially in like of Breath of the Wild and how they treated women in that. Ooh. I think uh, Nintendo's built a very uh, breathy with the D world here <laughs> um, that is built about taking your own like actor approach to it and collaborating with the director. But it's explicitly uh, within Breath of the Wild... Uh, kind of denies half of its player base because the player mm-hmm. base for Zelda, especially, so is very, yeah. uh, very female centric, very split even, and I think that's a very at odds again. All the story content in this game is very at odds with the sort of beautiful, religious, spiritual, uh, approachable world they built, mm-hmm. transcendentalist world they and built. Goddess elsewhere. oriented, female. It's yeah. not all about the goddess. Every single shrine and praise to the goddess, the goddess, the goddess, and we can't seem to get around. Link and Link is such an androgynous character to begin yeah, with. Yeah, they they designed him to. They explicitly said they designed him to be androgynous, so women androgynous, so women could um, 
could identify with it. And I'm not saying I don't like the androgyny. I'm trans. When I was in high school, I was pretty androgynous. I've always been pretty feminine looking. I identified a lot with Link because he kind of looked like I did when I was younger. Um, But not every woman looks like that. And, you know, even an androgynous man, you know, they identify as a man. They're still a man. It's it's like trying to have your cake and eat it too. Like the whole Kabuki theater thing where like men will like dress up as women and like there's a whole cultural history. It's almost like these half-hearted attempts, like an androgynous Link or Linkle, these half-hearted attempts at being inclusive to their female players are more insulting than if they just weren't there at all. I I, Mm. I mean, I agree. I think it's definitely like a, it's a missed opportunity, really. Because, like, you are the most heralded family or mass-market game developer or game publisher in the world, in the history of video games. Like, Nintendo, yeah, it's part of the big three. It's definitely underselling compared to Sony, uh, especially, and Microsoft. But, you know, hearts and minds, Nintendo owns the battlefield, right? Mm-hmm. Like, hearts and minds, it's Nintendo. And I think in that way, I mean, maybe that's a part of the line that they are forced to skate. Like, I worked for many years at Atari, and Atari makes shit games, but for a long time, when they were not making shit games, there was always this tug of war between, oh, our games don't just sell at GameSpot, they sell at Walmart. So there's certain cultural, you know, mores in this conservative-ass country, that we, socially conservative country that we live in, where to be a mass-market product, you have to sort of tick certain boxes and definitely not tick others. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe Nintendo feels trapped in that world um, because they are so mass-market. But either way, I do agree. I think it's a massive missed opportunity. That's just like point. something that's wrong with the market then. But also, like we were talking earlier about Nintendo taking risks by... Um, by being willing to lean into their Japanese heritage yeah. here, um, if they were willing to lean into uh, doing the gender stuff that they're clearly listening to because yeah. they're half-hearted trying to play to it, I feel like that would honestly reflect better on them, uh, even in the Walmart area. I think so too. Mm-hmm. I think in the long run, it's the right move to make. Maybe and hopefully, hopefully, they move towards it in a really respectful way. And, like, I don't want to keep us going too more long. Can I make, like, one more jokey point? Uh, It's it's interesting, too, because, like, Zelda's arc, like, arcs away from her being powerful. But just to, like, give one culmination about, like, the way this game doesn't... It it centers itself around women, like, goddesses and whatnot, but it doesn't fully respect their... the things that they bring to this world, Zelda's arc clearly ends on her being okay with not being strong. But at the same time, she spent a hundred years while you were sleeping, <laughs> keeping evil locked in a sealed castle. Yes. That's amazing. And it is the most like, you know, quotes unquote male privilege thing in the world to deny that monumental achievement well, saying, no, Link is the real hero here because he got a sword that beats the monster for yeah, him. Yeah, exactly. That's the thing, too. Zelda doesn't need a tool to do no, her job. Link has to get... She <laughs> is the magic. She's the conduit of this incredible power. Yeah. And also, let's not even get started on the Great Fairy. Link great needs fairy an extra thing. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, awesome. This has been an amazing episode. Michelle, thank you so much for lending us your... Thanks very, for having me on. Very this great uh, discussion. enlightened mind. This is amazing ideas. Um, and as always, we should thank uh, Old School Brian, Brian at Old School Brian. Track. Yeah. Yep. Um, and Yusuf, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. As always. And yeah. uh, to all y'all listeners out there, thank you. <laughs>